0: Hi there and welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development. And in today's show, you'll go inside the outsourcing space with Pamela Bush, who is Chief Business Officer at Predictive Oncology. So who is Pamela? Well, Pamela is a PhD and has over 20 years of experience in venture creation finance, and business development in the life science industry. Pamela is the Chief Business Officer of Predictive Oncology, where she leads the strategy and business development activities across the portfolio. Prior to joining Predictive Oncology, she worked at Eli Lilly & Company in various roles, including corporate business development, finance, and patient services. In addition to her Lilly work experience, uh, Pamela has worked in economic development, academia, and business consulting, supporting the creation and growth of 100 plus life science startups. And she holds a PhD in molecular genetics and an MBA from Carnegie Mellon University. A very impressive guest with game-changing platform for you to kind of get your teeth or your ears into today. Don't forget to subscribe and rate wherever you're listening and enjoy today's show. Hey, Pamela, welcome to Molecule to Market.
1: Thank you, Ramon, for having me here.
0: Absolute pleasure. And Pamela, let's let's give our listener a bit of an overview of you and your journey to where you are today. So give us some of the kind of milestones along your career today to, to, uh, you know, to, up to predictive oncology.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. So I'm a, a scientist by training. I'm a, I'm a molecular biologist, but decided a while back that I wanted to be on the business side to be able to impact the discovery of oncology drugs. And the, the road has been uh, a little bit uh, roundabout, but I have worked in economic development where I was able to work with many small companies that were getting started with entrepreneurs at universities. And from there, I went and worked at a big pharmaceutical company, at Eli Lilly and Company, for about 10 years in, in different roles. I was in finance, supporting the research and development organization, I was in corporate business development, where I was working with the small companies who were looking to license their technologies to and from Eli Lilly, and learned a lot about deal making and the impact that external opportunities have for for companies. And then I worked on on the commercial side. I've also had my own consulting firm serving small companies who do not need a full-time person to do business development. So I work with those companies, helping them reach those bigger organizations that they may wanna do do deals with. And about almost two years ago, I joined Predictive Oncology for the opportunity that Predictive Oncology has to impact the way that oncology drug discovery is done and how it can help other companies that are looking to move forward their oncology pipelines.
0: Thank you for that. And we'll come back to predictive oncology. Obviously, we'll spend a significant amount of time talking about the organization and, and what you guys do. Almost a decade at Lilly in two different spells. Um, I've had the pleasure, actually, of, of working with a Lilly team many years ago. It was actually one of my first ever jobs. And I found the team there to be absolutely wonderful. Actually, they would never felt like a big pharma company. So was that... And I'm just going purely off my experience. Is that part of the secret of Lily's success that they've managed to retain almost a almost a family friendly feel, or was that just my <laughs> my lucky break that I ended up with a team like that?
1: No, it is. It is definitely a a family feel. And I to tell you, I, I have I've not shared this with many people, but one of the reasons why I ended up joining Lily was for the opportunity that they gave me to show that they say family comes first and the importance of having work-life balance. And they gave me a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, actually, to do my internship when I was doing my uh, MBA, to do my internship as a remote employee. This was a long time ago. This was before long time before COVID, before uh, remote employment. And the reason was because I I, I had to decline the internship because my my son was a, a toddler and I could not just leave and move to Indianapolis for for the summer with that with a toddler, so they made it fit. They like you know what we we will figure out a way to to do it. So it has been a, a company that the words match their their actions, and there's a good team of people who have been there for a long time, and people don't rotate a lot in and out of Lily, and that creates that consistency. And I think that. The, the brilliance of the scientists and the portfolio that they have put together for molecules is just absolutely outstanding so i have great faith in the work that my fellow colleagues at lily are doing
0: yeah isn't that amazing just to see how ahead of their time that business was in terms of you know engaging with a remote worker with a young family you know it's so it's so common these days pamela but you know you know however many years ago it was it was probably incredibly uncommon for anyone to you know, it was like, oh my god, somebody's working from home. What are they working on? You know, it was just like an absolute lack of trust. But it's incredible. And uh, I, I want to double click on something that you said. You actually said it a couple of times in your introduction, which was the phrase deal making. And obviously, given your experience, you've you've got a great experience in deal making and and what goes within that. As you reflect back on your time at Lily and the types of deals you were doing at a relatively I suppose, uh, in a young part of your career in terms of where you were uh, in terms of versus now, what what were some of the key lessons that you learned on that journey in terms of if we, deal making is clearly a very broad subject, but what are some of the key lessons that you learned back then that are still core to the way you think about doing deals today? I
1: think that the key thing to do when you are looking to make a deal is to listen to the person on the other side of the table and understand what it is that they are trying to accomplish while having also a good understanding of what I am trying to or my organization is trying to to accomplish because it is a lot of conversations it is a lot of pre-understanding and seeing how the two pieces fit together so the first one I would say is is listening. And the second one is creativity. How can we make this work for both organizations to make sure that everybody is maximizing the benefit that comes out? Because it is, it is long-term relationships. In pharma, you may be making a deal that is in the preclinical stages. It's going to be 10 years before that compound can be commercialized or the platform technology that is being used is, it's gonna be used early and it's you're not gonna see the results of that for another seven years or so. So you have to make sure that you are making the deal with, with the intent that it's going to be a long-term opportunity. And many times right at the go, it does not seem that it could work, but I think through those conversations and creativity, you can craft uh, deals where both organizations can win and can be set up for success in the future.
0: I think that's a a really brilliantly made kind of observation, and I have to say, you know, that that's certainly been my experience as well. That uh, that ability just to listen and empathise, and almost put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're doing a deal with, allows you to get to a position of of compromise and understanding, and and as you said, like a win win, which I think is 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 critical. So I certainly I certainly recommend our listeners. Rewind back and listen to your answer actually, and and maybe take that away as a learning, which is which is terrific. And uh, so let's talk about then. Obviously, you've had a very successful career, and then you joined a predictive oncology a few years ago. So, what was it about predictive oncology that attracted you to the business, to the role? Give us, and you did say right at the start, which I'd, I'd written down. You know, you were always interested in the discovery of oncology. So, was it? Was it a sense of going back to what was always important to you, and that this seemed like the the absolute perfect opportunity?
1: Yes, it was. It was the perfect opportunity at at the right time. I, like I said, I, I had I had loved my my time at at Lilly, and this this opportunity presented itself, and I had it felt like a once in a lifetime opportunity to have direct impact in many companies, oncology discovery uh, pipelines. So as I shared with you earlier, I am passionate about oncology. And this is something that in as I think about it, I've been wanting to do since I was a, a teenager. I thought that I would be the person that discovered the, the cure for cancer by myself. I was naive enough to think about it, but I, I've been also stubborn enough to, to stick by it. So even though it's not going to be me, I want to make sure that Things that help the brilliant minds that are actually in the lab developing those molecules are going to have tools that is going to improve the way that those molecules work or that are going to be more successful to be in the clinic so that they can eventually become medicines that are going to help the patients. So when this opportunity presented itself to, to work for predictive oncology and, and later we can go into the details, I thought that the acid that predictive uh, oncology has is going to be key in helping oncology pipelines become stronger and be more likely to succeed in in clinical trials.
0: So let's let's follow that thread now because my next question was going to be talk to us about predictive oncology, you know, in terms of what the company and its platform does and how it's able to support drug development companies. And I suppose before you answer that, I think if I've understood correctly your kind of mission, your your person personal mission mission to you know obviously cure cancer, which is fantastic is is difficult to do on your own, but presumably when you're in a business like predictive oncology, you have the ability to impact many many molecules and many drug development programs which in turn may get you there. <laughs> you may play a, you may play a role. Uh, I might be paraphrasing there, but that's the way I read that that kind of answer
1: yes so my goal is just to to be the i, I don't know I, I think that all of these opportunities with with companies it is throwing a little pebble into into a lake and just seeing the ripple effect and that that ripple may not be a medicine until many many years later but i think that there's always the opportunity to make things better so predictive oncology is a a company that serves organizations working on in drug development that we have Two, two main arms that are, that are doing that. One is with respect to formulations. We have technology that can help formulate large molecules, peptides, proteins, antibodies, any combination of, of, of bigger molecules that are harder to formulate so that they can then be given to a patient in, in a reasonable volume, in a reasonable uh, dose. And, and those can be hard sometimes because you can have a, a right molecule, it just cannot be formulated. So we have a a really advanced platform to help companies work through all the different permutations of, po- of potential formulations with very small amounts of protein and, and in a very quick quick manner. So And that one is actually therapeutic area agnostic. It can work in oncology, but it can also work in any other therapeutic area that is large molecule uh, dependent and then the the portion that i was talking about earlier that relates to our pedal platform and the the pedal platform is a combination of assets that that come together to work with oncology early stage discovery pl- pipelines to then help make the decision help the scientists make the decision for the best candidate to move into into clinical trials. Companies spend a, a lot of money and, and a lot of time narrowing down the, the number of compounds from thousands to one or two to move into clinical. So how can a company have more confidence in the drug that they're mo- moving uh, into the clinic is going to work in a diverse population, in a heterogeneous population, of patients once it gets to the clinic. So Petal is a platform that provides data and serves as a tool for scientists and business individuals in in pharma, big, medium, small pharma, to move compounds that are going to have a higher probability of success in the clinic.
0: That's so interesting. And just so I heard it right, is it Petal like a flower petal or is it Petal like you put your gas, you know, on the gas petal?
1: Yep, it is pedal like the uh, a bicycle. P E D A L.
0: Okay, perfect. I just I, I couldn't quite hear well. That's probably my uh <laughs> my ears more than anything. What a, what an amazing sounding platform I have to say. I mean both both parts of the platform, but uh, particularly the second one that you talked about. I suppose if I'm understanding correctly, it, it, it's an ability to obviously screen very quickly and ultimately get uh no. it support drug development, drug developers with higher probability, ultimately, of having the right molecules versus, I suppose, kind of putting all their eggs in one basket on one. Is that, is that fair or is it a bit more complicated than that?
1: It, it, is, it is that. And then what it is actually in, uh, doing is, right now, the way that drug discovery is, is done, there's cell-based assays, cell lines are utilised animal studies, uh, PDX models, um, and, and even if they're using a, a variety of tumor-specific cell lines, there is no ability right now to have a variety of unique tumor samples to test the molecules in. So the molecules are going into clinical trials and they have not been tested in true human diverse, heterogeneous tumor samples. Due to the biobank that we have, we have a a biobank of over 150,000 unique tumor samples, and these are actual human tumor cells that have been frozen in the entirety of the tumor that was received, uh, the entirety of the uh, cell population. They have been frozen and they can be utilized then to predict how the drug is going to respond across a diverse population, giving you a glimpse of how that molecule might behave when it's challenged in a clinical trial. And it has to work with X number of different people that they're, even though they all have the same organ tumor, the same tumor type, they are all going to respond differently to said drug because they're all unique individuals. So this gives you a glimpse. It may also transpire that a lot of the drugs are failing before they get to the clinic. But that's a good thing, right? Uh, we want to make sure that companies are able to make that decision of which one to to move forward, that uh, commercial decision of which one is going to be the strongest and for which type of tumors sooner rather than later.
0: It's fascinating, really Really interesting business model. And you said 150,000 plus database of cancer tumors, which I don't have much to put that against, but it sounds like a heck of a lot. And I presume you guys use some AI technology or machine learning within the business to help you, I suppose, <laughs> do all of the, yes. the work and yeah. the screening that you do. That would be my guess anyway.
1: Absolutely. So yes, the the other component of Petal is the active machine learning engine. And that is what helps with, with the predictions because otherwise it would be incredibly time consuming and resource consuming to test every single permutation because um, should a company give us a, a hundred compounds that they're trying to evaluate and we are looking to do a hundred or 200 uh, different tumor samples from different tumor types. And if you run all of those experiments in the lab, uh, it can be sheer resources that are poured into that. But we can also be be smart about it and utilize this active machine learning uh, engine and feed it the information about the molecules and then also provide the features about the specific tumor samples that are being utilized in, in the campaign, as well as how did each of those samples respond to previously tested drugs, standard of care, and so on and how did they respond to those drugs and based on the new drug that it may that it has never seen before and the structure of that drug predict how the 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 tumor is going to respond to that new drug and the active machine learning engine will predict every single permutation of the campaign so if the space is 100 drugs times, times 100 uh, 200 samples that's going to be about 20,000 uh, different uh, predictions. And then it ranks them and it says, okay, these are the ones that there's the least confidence associated with that. And we take that small, manageable, quick to turn around number, we test them in the laboratory. And, and that's the, the third component, uh, third and last component of pedal is the ability to do customized testing in the laboratory because we have access to those tumor cells, which are growing and they are uh, able for experimentation, we run those those experiments, let's say a couple dozen, 50 experiments, we run those, and then we incorporate that new information into the campaign, into the engine, and then it uses that new information to make a new round of predictions across the whole experimental space, and again, it's going to have some that it's not very confident on, and we're going to run those in the lab, And it becomes, it's an iterative process until the new information that it's requesting no longer changes the predictive models that it has generated. And at that point, we end up with a list of compounds that have been most effective across a variety of tumor samples. And that is the data that is provided to the partner to then make that decision that they need to make to move compounds further in development.
0: Wow. It's, a, it's an incredible, incredible piece of technology. And you, you, it, I suppose this is just for my own understanding, if the way you describe, you know, you know a hundred potential compounds, a couple of hundred experiments, you know, you said that that's often would be done manually. I'm well, sorry, is, is is my assumption that historically that would have been a manual process, whereas what you guys are doing is obviously using... Uh, you know active machine learning kind of in combination with artificial intelligence to take a lot of that heavy lift away or does it just I suppose obliterate what is out there at the minute in terms of you would obviously use this platform in exchange for the the old school way of doing things which would be those kind of manual processes that is that is that I mean maybe I've misunderstood it but that would be my uh, takeaway
1: so there's a lot of work that is done uh, manually in, in earlier stages when you're... And it's actually not manual because at this point it's, it's high throughput and it's uh, somewhat automated. But every single combination needs to be tested. Um, what is unique about pedal is the combination of in silico predictions with automated and manual actual lab experiments. So it is all coming... It is the utilization of all of them, but the majority of the combinations, let's say, are tested in quotations in silico, and because it's active machine learning, it's learning from each round of small, manageable, actual wet lab experiments that are being done. So it is the combination of all of it. But at the end, if you look at the final outcome, the majority of the combinations it's going to be an in silico, it's going to be a predicted response output. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector, the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space.
0: Let's kind of move this on. If you know Within your role as chief business officer, presumably you find yourself in situations with potential buyers you know whether whether it be big pharma companies biotech academic and where you're articulating the value that your pedal model can can bring to an organization does the recipient sometimes feel like it's too good to be true almost like almost like wow I can't believe something like this exists or is your technology uh, you know pretty similar to other things out there on the market I'm just trying to is it almost very difficult to sell because it's almost mind-blowingly <laughs> different to what people are used to.
1: It is challenging to identify the person that would be benefiting or who is making the decisions that would benefit from this technology. And besides, we are the only privately held organization that has a biobank to this magnitude. So it is it is something that is new in the market in that respect in that Nobody else has access to to these samples of, of 150,000. And by the way, these are just solid tumors. I just want to make sure that that's, that's clear. And it covers every single type of, of tumor type. We have enough samples for, for everyone of, of those tumor types. So it, it is challenging in that respect because it is a new way to look at how to make decisions. However, it is not disrupting the... Way that the process goes, it is incorporating additional information early on that may impact the way that decisions are made down down the line. But it is a decision tool that is available for for drug discovery
0: teams. So, in my in my very simple mind, it is exactly that. It is effectively a very sophisticated screening tool that allows you to make smarter decisions in terms of you know how to how to either fail fast or pick the, the, the molecules that you think have got the best chance of success that that's the way i would look at it in in a very simple way is that a, is that a fair assessment
1: it, yes what i would add to that is that it is incorporating something that has not been incorporated before and that is the ability to get a glimpse of how the drug is going to work against a heterogeneous population Before it goes into a clinical trial, there's no ability to truly test that right now because it's hard to have the number of tumor samples readily available otherwise. And they are tested sometimes in, in cell lines, but we, we know that that is, that is different than actual tumor cells. So what we're doing is we're giving a glimpse of how the drug may behave when it is, uh, challenged in, in a true heterogeneous population clinical trial.
0: Okay. Okay. So that, that huge biobanker, you know, the cancer tumors that you have allows you to look at a much broader, diverse range of potential people effectively, which then gives, gives you much more information earlier on in the process.
1: Exactly. Yes. Because not only are you going to know that your drug is killing the cell that it has to, that it, it has the right toxic profile, maybe, that it has just all of the right profile. You're still gonna need to do all of that work, but you're also going to know that, hey, by the way, this molecule works on 68% of, for example, pancreatic cancer tumor samples that it was exposed to. So you can start to gain an understanding of how that molecule would behave when it gets into, into a clinical trial. And And by the way, you can also go back and look at what are the samples that actually responded positively to your drug, and try to understand what might be some of those biomarkers. If that is a strategy that the company is looking to go to, because that definitely would increase the the value of the molecule. It would impact the way that you design a, a clinical trial. So there's there's a lot of opportunities to. Understand more about your molecule, therefore increasing the probability of success of that molecule to enter a clinical trial and come out as a medicine.
0: Which again, hopefully, addresses and accomplishes your original uh, mission of helping cure different types of cancer. Which is which is incredible that this platform will will assist companies in getting there uh, safer and quicker. And I suppose. It, you know, since this technology has come onto the market, I appreciate you can't talk about specific clients or projects or anything like that, but what, what's been the general feedback from, from companies that have utilized the technology so far, if you're able to share that, uh, Pamela?
1: So we are working right now, we have a collaboration with the Cancer Research uh, UK and we have a project that is ongoing right now we're working on a program that they have, and we are working through the initial stages of, of that program. We anticipate that this is going to provide them the insight that they need to make those decisions of, from the molecules that they are providing, which one is going to be the most successful to be uh, to become a medicine, and therefore, as they realize the value of having this information early on then that it becomes a part of the process of how drugs are discovered and developed as part of their their pipeline we are working through through different uh with different companies to identify projects that are key at the right stage to be able to benefit from from this platform so so far the the feedback has been we we want to see how this work. Some cases we want to see more information because it is it is a little bit different of from the way that, that things have been done. But I'm I'm confident that the value that it's going to bring to to companies by increasing that probability of success is is definitely going to outweigh the uh, the resources that it takes to to get the campaign going.
0: And if someone you know poops. Has donated several times to to cancer research UK through different different mediums. It's great to hear you're working with such a incredibly well respected organization. And I did note this as well on your on your investor website. Some of the customers and partners that you have worked with are you know seriously impressive. And so you know, I certainly encourage people to. To have a look at some of the work that that you guys that you guys do in some of the big pharma companies and uh, types of CROs that you work with, which is really great uh, given given the nature of what you guys do. And if I understand correctly, you guys is obviously given the investor pitch or a you're a Nasdaq listed company. So, how did, talk me through as chief business officer, how does that impact your day to day? Does it have any impact, or appreciate you can't you know go go <laughs> see things in the market that could be you know, impact share price and all that kind of stuff. But uh, does that have a huge impact on your role day-to-day or is actually, is it quite similar to things you've done in the past where, you know, you're deal-making and having conversations with people, you know, obviously under CDAs or does it make things more complicated for you?
1: I, I would say that it, it, it ebbs and flows. Having worked for for private companies and having worked for, for public companies in the past, I think that it it, it depends on, on, on the day or it depends on, on what's going on what is unique about predictive oncology is that it is a small public company so it has sometimes a a more direct and an urgent need so I, I would say that it is something that we we keep in mind we definitely want to always be building value for for our shareholders we also want to be making the right decisions for for the business and and for the patients but there's always a a constant awareness that that we are a a public company and we we need to make sure that we are um, building that, that value for shareholders, absolutely.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And uh, thank you for sharing that. It's good to to get your perspective. It's really useful for people that have not worked in public listed companies and just to understand some of the kind of pressures. I did notice as well when I was doing some background research that you guys had announced a partnership with, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to absolutely butcher this name, but I'll have a go at it, which is Sevigen, uh, Cervigin, uh <laughs> C- <laughs> Cervigenics. Yeah, Civigenics, which is, um, do, do you mind talking a little bit about that, which I found is really interesting to read, although clearly I can't pronounce the name, but uh, yeah, it'd be great if you can talk a bit about that collaboration and, and what it means.
1: Absolutely. So it is a private company that is looking to impact the way that radiation is, radiation therapy, excuse me, is is done for, for ca- cancer patients. And similar to a drug working differently in, in different people, just because we're all unique, uh, radiation uh, works the, the same way in, in, in cancer patients. So two different people are going to, to respond differently to, to radiation. And c has found a genetic signature that helps develop the radiation regimen for, for the patient. So that is what uh C-Regenics is currently working on is showing that by understanding the genetic makeup of the patient that you can tailor the radiation so that it's neither too much nor too little radiation to make sure that in that, that as effectively you could eliminate that tumor for with radiation and I don't remember right now the statistics but it's it's a large number of patients that actually receive radiation and a large percentage of those that are actually cured just by radiation alone. So that, that is the mission of, of Cybergenics. So because of the predictive models that predictive oncology is, is working on through pedal, through the formulations, uh, solutions, we have a lot of in-house knowledge and, and computational biology knowledge about utilizing predictive information to, to make decisions. So at this stage, we are in the conversation and in the understanding what the projects, what are the projects that can come out of the knowledge that they have with the knowledge that we have and the resources that we have in internally. So at this point, I'm, I'm not ready to talk about specific things, but we are definitely trying to understand, and as I mentioned earlier, those conversations that creativity coming together to see what can be done to to maximize the value of, of both entities
0: well thanks for sharing that as well I appreciate you are you can't share everything <laughs> on the podcast last couple of minutes just to, to round off what's been a really great conversation and um, I suppose as I look at you guys as a business obviously you are given the investment in technology and you know staffing and everything you know you're, you're one of those businesses that That is almost like a hockey stick where you'll, once that traction of technology comes, then the business starts becoming not only revenue generating, significantly revenue generating, but really cash generative as well. How does, how does the, I suppose, the the slowdown in the biotech capital market and just the general macro factors around investment in life sciences, have you guys felt some of the impact, both directly from a, a, I suppose, a the impact on public listed companies but also has it meant less customers for you to to potential customers for you to talk to as people are reluctant to to spend cash at the minute
1: there is definitely you definitely feel uh, companies are looking to invest on things that are going to be uh that are going to help them be successful that are going to help them increase the likelihood that the decisions that they make are going to be the right ones whether it's Acquiring a molecule, whether it's acquiring a platform or or partnering for these. So the value that we bring to to the companies, our value is that we with a relatively small investment, companies are going to be able to make those decisions to identify which are the molecules that are going to be stronger. So yes, there is an, an investment to to work with us. However, the value that it brings is that possibly less clinical trials are going to be, are going to be wrought or more trials are, or more molecules are going to be moved into, into clinical trials that can then become medicine. So just to give you an idea, the probability of success of a molecule is a way in which molecules are, or in which, uh, excuse me, portfolios are managed. And, and companies are always looking, okay, which are the molecules that are coming up for the next stage of development? Which investments do we need to make? And then there's a probability of success of those molecules. And as you can imagine, the, the molecules with the, the highest probability or the molecules that have the the biggest commercial opportunity are the ones that are going to be moved into, into development. Because it's an expensive decision, that candidate uh, selection decision. So imagine if by having challenged the molecule early on in a platform like Petals, you can double that probability of success. And it's still a small probability before it goes into the clinic, right? But let's say that you double that probability of of success uh, later on. That means that you can confidently be running half of the clinical trials to find the right tumor type for, for that molecule before you you end up with with a with a medicine. or the flip side of that is if you have doubled the probability of of that molecule or of all of your molecules, that means that you can take for the same amount of investment for a company, you can take two molecules and you're going to end up with two medicines at at the end. So it is, it is a probabilities and numbers decision. and I think that we have we provide that opportunity and that value to increase that probability. So that then the decisions, the very costly decisions and the long term decisions of doing clinical trials later on, is going to be a more robust uh, decision. It's, it's an investment, but it's ideally a long term savings and even probably of, of time and money.
0: It definitely feels like that, certainly from what what you've what you've talked about today and that kind of investment up front. If you end up with two very very strong looking molecules, your chances of getting investment for your next milestone for a biotech company for example is going to be a lot higher than having one lead candidate that hasn't <laughs> doesn't have the robustness of data sitting behind it and that's probably the thing that would make investors more nervous so uh, Pamela we are we are up on time and I have to say I've really enjoyed our conversation today Um this is a slightly newer world for me. It's not an area of expertise. That I, I certainly am, hence, the, hence all the, uh, the silly questions, but I'm glad I asked them because I suspect a lot of our listeners, this is an area that they're not uh, familiar with. So in, obviously when you bring such an innovative game-changing technology to the market, it requires someone like you to articulate and explain it in a way that people can understand, which I think you've done so expertly well. So thank you. Thank you for bringing your story and in, in telling us about predictive oncology
1: it was delightful to to talk with you Raman and thank you so much for the opportunity to to share more information about pedal and the the work that we're doing to to help ultimately patients
0: so that was Hamla Bush PhD who is chief business officer at predictive oncology you can probably tell from the types of questions that i asked that this was an area of drug development that is certainly not my Area of expertise. So you probably saw the super curious part of me trying to get my head around this uh, incredible platform and how it can potentially impact drug developers in the future. I think it credit to Pam. Pam, sorry for the manner in which she was able to explain exactly what the business does and how. It uh, creates value for drug development companies um, in, in such a great, great way. Uh, some of the things that, if, as I reflect back on today's episode that I took from it, I mean, the deal-making learnings uh, learned primarily at a time at Eli Lilly, I thought were were timeless really in terms of thinking about, you know, listening, empathy, and just being on the same side as the other person when doing a deal, and that often leads to, to better outcomes. Uh, you know, previous guest on here was uh, the brilliant uh, author of Same Side Selling, Ian Altman. Who uh, I recommend you go back and listen to that podcast or pick up that book because it very much aligned to to Pamela's view. You know, it was really interesting to hear Pamela's kind of passion for wanting to cure cancer, the naive passion that she said, and how that ultimately led her down a pathway to where she is today. And you know, very much. On the edge of being able to impact thousands of molecules in lots of different companies that you know, target oncology areas, which you know for every single one of us listening have probably been impacted by cancer somewhere in in our in our lives. You know, as I tried to get my head around the various parts of the predictive oncology business, I thought it was uh, really insightful to just explain how the kind of active machine learning. Iteratively, iteratively works uh, in terms of screening molecules and and also, uh, you know, as part of that as well, how AI is being used, which again is such a topical issue and, you know, Panna talked about how it's going to help companies fail quickly and, you know, I suppose select molecules that are more likely to have success. And as we got towards the back end, I think the impact of that in terms of funding uh, and data readouts is uh, incredibly, incredibly powerful. I also enjoyed the conversation of just how difficult it is to, uh, to sell in something like this, something that's so game-changing and different, um, and this might be, this might become the way we do things in the future, but you know, for any innovation, the, the the kind of early adopters take some time to get any traction and, you know, I certainly read between that, that predictive oncology is going through that curve at the minute, but you can see the potential. Uh, you know, let, let's see if, you know, the great partnership they talked about with Cancer Research UK works, and they get that kind of credibility piece, how that could be you know, very powerful across the rest of the in- industry. So those are just some of my thoughts and takes, the takeaways, and I'm sure you had lots uh, of your own as well. Thanks to my team for pulling the podcast together. And if you like today's episode, please like and share it. And if you're at, uh, you know, any event, at bio- week in boston in september you try worldwide uh, gil ross pboa event uh, i suspect i'll be at a couple of others as well just drop me a message on linkedin we'd love to meet you in person but i think if you're listening you should probably buy me a beer all right enjoy today's show oh, i hope you've enjoyed today's show and i'll speak to you very soon hi again thanks for tuning in to today's show i really hope you enjoyed the episode for more shows have a look on spotify apple or amazon wherever you like to listen and do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically and please get in touch via our website molecule to market pod or via linkedin or twitter we love to hear from you so if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on molecule to market then please let us know We'll see you very soon.
1: You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.